Welcome to the Creative Language Technologies Podcast. I am Roxana Guruju, your creative host, bringing you information on the multifaceted aspects of this emerging field at the intersection of science, technology, engineering, math, and medicine with a broader sector of humanities, social sciences, arts, and culture. The podcast aims to revitalize technological imagination and explore creative themes with social impact. We hope to build a community of creatives by stimulating interest in new modes of collaboration and creation processes that represent diverse disciplinary views and help transform current practices of language technologies. Here is the show. This is episode number 10 of the podcast, and it's Thursday, the 27th of January, 2022. My invited speaker today is Dr. Daniel M. Gross, professor of English and affiliated faculty in the Critical Theory Emphasis at UC Irvine, where he is also campus writing and communication coordinator. Daniel has been working on emotions in the world for over two decades, His approach starts with his home discipline of rhetoric, once understood as the art of moving souls by the way of the passions, which he then mines for the sake of some pressing questions. How do we understand collective political emotions like gay pride or the angry white male? Are emotions limited to human beings? And what do we do with fights over which model of emotions should prevail? For example, a biophysiological model that might help us recognize the face of a terrorist at the airport, or a humanities model that helps explain things like how terror becomes an unevenly shared experience in the first place. Working sometimes with Stephanie D. Preston of the Michigan Ecological Neuroscience Lab, he has pursued answers for these questions in published works that include The Secret History of Emotion, from Aristotle's Rhetoric to Modern Brain Science in 2007, and Uncomfortable Situations, Emotion Between Science and the Humanities. Of course, we had to start the conversation with rhetoric and emotions, both important aspects of human experience. We then slightly shifted focus to Darwin and his view of emotions and sensations. We could not help connecting the discussion to Ekman's categories of emotions with specific reference to empathy and sympathy. Daniel shared his view on the current research practices in emotion research in the context of lab control experiments versus studies on emotions in the wild. In the second part of the show, we debated on how well can computers ever be able to detect human emotion versus how good humans are at knowing what other people really feel. And of course, we had to close with the ethical implication of such technologies. Here is the show. Hello, Daniel. It is nice to have you on the show. Hi, Roxana. Thanks for having me. Welcome. So emotions, a topic that has been very, very popular on this podcast and for a very good reason. Emotions are so important, yet still so poorly understood. After so many decades of research on this topic, we are yet to agree on the object of study, the approach, and or the representation across at least some of the disciplines. But first, 
when and how did you start to work on emotions? So my work on emotions began in graduate school during the 1990s. That was toward the end of what we called a linguistic turn in the human sciences. You may remember as well as a linguist yourself. Everything seemed at that time to be about language, language as the structure of thought and even of reality, language as the distinction of human being, or even on the contrary, a kind of abyss that separates us from the object of knowledge and that's what deconstruction was interested in. So here I was training as an historian of rhetoric, um, ostensibly about language. And I was discovering something completely different in the archives. Rhetoric wasn't just a language art. In fact, it was more often historically a proto-human science that's always worked much more on the arts of moving souls as they were called in uh, the early modern era. That's to say affecting and transforming people by way of the emotions. And this is how rhetoric in fact lay the groundwork for our modern human sciences, including most prominently at the outset, education, political science, psychology. So the big discovery of my dissertation was that the early modern human sciences were not initially soft natural sciences that applied quantitative methods to human beings and populations. That happened, but that was much later in the 18th century enlightenment. So instead, the early modern human sciences, we're talking about the 15th and 16th century in Europe, these were first arts of moving souls, both individual souls and then also the body politic, as someone like Thomas Hobbes and also his contemporaries like to say. So how did early moderns like Hobbes figure out how to do this? How to approach human being scientifically and not just theologically, for example, or artistically? The ancient discipline most readily available to them for this huge scientific project of modernity was rhetoric and the well-established domain of intervention. Um, this is again, both personal and political was emotion or what they called at the time passions. So that's how and when I started to work on the topic, really quite by surprise, before this interdisciplinary field that we now study really took off, emotion studies. The project began as a kind of a history. I wanted to revitalize an ancient discipline that had developed all sorts of knowledge and know-how that we've lost, I think, and much to our detriment across the human and natural sciences. So at the broadest level, my historical thesis was that political rhetoric was transforming during this time as it became a generalized psychology. Passions, these were once overtly rhetorical in that they established ratios, relationships amongst people, things, gods, passions such as anger, sympathy, pride, humility, they now quietly sustain the assumption that emotions are hardwired to the human nature that we all share equally. Emotions that were once a form of social currency, they now had to be sucked into the brain as it were. So the problem is that we've now basically lost our capacity to work on emotion beyond that familiar psychological science. And that makes all sorts of human situations basically illegible to our current academic methods, 
but especially to our scientific methods, I think. So why, for example, mourning across the globe for Princess Diana, whom we never met, and then apathy or even disgust for someone suffering on the street right next to us? How should we understand the angry white male I've wondered quite a bit recently, or an activist emotion like gay pride? So are things like an amusement park, a happy meal, are these mere words, uh, or are they really objects of intense emotion themselves? And I have a seven-year-old who would certainly insist that they are. So my conviction is that by themselves, the current dominant tools for studying emotion can't do a very good job with questions like these, while at the same time, we do have all sorts of neglected resources in the humanities and in the human sciences that can do better while offering the opportunity for a mixed methods approach. I think that takes the current science quite seriously, in fact. Yes, how central emotions are to human experience. And that's why it's, uh, it touches so many fields. Let's talk now about Ekman's set of emotions, a representation of discrete categories that are presumed universally true. This approach has kept the community at large divided into enthusiasts and skeptics. And yes, Ekman's set of emotions are still popular in, I would say, some wide research circles out there. Now, you, through your research, draw the community's attention back to Darwin. Haven't we studied Darwin already? And what can he still teach us about emotions? Yes, a great question. This will take a minute to describe. So Ekman, right? Anger, contempt, disgust, enjoyment, fear, sadness, and surprise. When I teach this material, students always get a funny look on their face and someone raises their hand and says, what about love? Isn't that like the emotion, <laughs> Say, you know, the, the young folk? And of course, that's a kind of red flag to students who think this is seeming very academic to define emotions in, in a way that's so counterintuitive and against our common sense about what emotion means. Um, so that's a kind of starting point uh, for teaching. To be fair, I described to students, Ekman also called each on his list of seven, a universal emotion that has a range of feelings incorporated, right? In the case of anger, the range runs from annoyance on the mild side to fury at the, ex at the extreme. So he sort of shoehorns in um, some other recognizable emotions as other people call them into these spectra. But right in the middle of Ekman's range of angry feelings, he, he gives us oddities like vengefulness, and argumentativeness, which Darwin, I think, would rightly say require a very different sort of analysis. After all, it's argumentativeness that is poorly understood as an uh, automatic appraisal influenced by our evolutionary and personal past. So that's Ekman's definition of an emotion. I think it's much better understood as a culturally embedded type of behavior. And I, I think that Darwin would agree, and I'll describe how, a way of approaching the world as the linguist Everett Tannen would suggest from a feminist perspective. So you really don't under understand something like argumentativeness um, strictly on Ekman's biological timeframe. So Darwin was highly sophisticated in his analytic approach. Uh, I think he, he does that work much better than most of us now. 
the book that focused his work on emotion was published in 1872. It was actually the first scientific book to include photographs, which were placed in by hand. And that's one of the characteristics of the book that Ekman himself, when he edits the emotions book by Darwin, picks up because that method persists to this day, looking at pictures of acted facial expressions of emotion and showing them to people cross-culturally to see what the reactions are. It's a very complex work though, and it's do doing a lot more than, than that methodological approach per se. He writes the book in part to provide evidence for his theory of evolution, examining how, for example, it's meaningful when we humans recognize the disappointment of a pouting chimsy, a chimpanzee who had his orange taken away. Uh, so in certain respects, emotions for Darwin do map onto the longer frame of biological time. But at the same time, what Darwin did in that book and elsewhere, this is I think truly important but neglected, is to take absolutely seriously historical time as a crucial factor in the scientific study of emotion. So things like adaptive fear of predators, adaptive sympathy for offspring, they map onto very long arcs of biological time. But in the case of sympathy, for instance, what else seems to be happening that might actually appear maladaptive? He was interested in this. We might think about something like Nazi sympathizers. What does that suggest? How do we understand sympathy beyond or even in contrast to infant care? So that's where Darwin's wide-ranging inquiry still stands as a kind of model for us today, I think. For Darwin, the extended range of feelings in what he called civilized sympathy is not just a matter of evolution across biological time. It's not just a matter of individual cognition. It's also a matter of the environment understood historically. So the built environment, institutions and cultural environments, technology and language forms. These were all uh, elements of his analysis. So an example, in the end notebooks, and these are quite early in the 1830s, and then in the Descent of Man, Darwin speculates that increased brain capacity, including memory most importantly, radically alters our sympathetic capacity because sensations can be compared extensively and even abstractly. So say feeling for a completely mediated Princess Diana, we might observe. Like, how do you do that? And how is that very different from other types of primate emotion? Even if brain capacity across Darwin's more or less civilized societies is essentially the same, the structures of mind and feeling are very different because environments differ substantially. Civilized sympathy was opposed to what Darwin described as sentimentality. And sentimentality focused on the immediate pain, the immediate experience, say, of suffering, that an activity like, in, in his case and in his time, mandatory smallpox vaccination entailed face-to-face. -face. So in fact, Darwin was quite involved in that debate, which has a resonance for us today. So for Darwin, a civilized Victorian, as we might call them, sees and feels differently towards this activity, which he considered backed by science and followed policy decisions like uh, the Compulsory Vaccination Act of 1853. 
which could be enforced with harsh penalties that presumably didn't appear at all sympathetic to the unwilling sufferers. So this scenario of imposing on individuals what immediately looks and feels like the imposition of pain in Darwin's analysis has another level of impact, which is the greater good. And that's where in his analysis, civilized sympathy is oriented. So good for the greater population, but pain right now in all sorts of ways. And that he thought was historically embedded. The contours of what Darwin called the mind of man are determined in his civilized, civilized societies, he calls it by things that are embedded in context, concept language, suffering justly, legal codes, for example, mass media, newspapers and books that circulate arguments about what the greater good is, and these kinds of entanglements worldwide that were evident uh, also in the middle 1800s. So the global impact of, in this case, a pandemic and how to respond, that, that global awareness and orientation really constrains and gives opportunity to sympathy in ways that the immediate response doesn't. So in short, uh, our post-Darwinian perspective, sympathy, what we now call empathy, it might show up in a brain scan, but the mistake is to fixate primarily on how you need the brain to feel empathic as Antonio Damasio might say. So yes, of course, you need the brain to feel and do lots of things, including, for example, to drive to the movie theater. That's trivially true. But what Darwin suggests to us, I think, is that we need much more than the brain to feel empathic. And it behooves us as researchers to figure out what exactly. For Darwin, this kind of detailed historical explanation and serious consideration of the imaginative arts offer really essential information about how and when and why we feel certain ways and not others. So just to conclude, I, I want to read one brief passage from Darwin himself on sympathy so you get a sense for the, the language and the sort of analysis he does, uh, which includes a lot of speculation. The vivid recollection of our former home or of long past happy days readily causes the eyes to be suffused with tears. But here again, the thought naturally occurs that these days will never return. In such cases, we may be said to sympathize with ourselves in our present state in comparison with our former. Sympathy with the distress of others, even with the imaginary distress of a heroine in a pathetic story for whom we feel no affection readily excites tears. So does sympathy with the happiness of others as with that of a lover at last successful after many hard trials in a well-told tale. So that's to say, Roxana, Darwin insists upon the human technologies of emotion, like institution building and imaginative storytelling, along with a physiology of emotion. Let's uh, get back to this very nice example, comparing sympathy with empathy. Let's get back to this a little bit later on. But how do you see the current state of emotion research, meaning what are emotions and how many are there? Should we count them? Do we still believe that they are bucket categories in which we just place newly seen instances? I'll give you a few approaches to that question. 
One is a kind of easy to operationalize and study approach, which is going to have some importance and truth to it, namely basic emotions, something like the smile of happiness has a universal recognizable quality, undoubtedly. And there's no doubt that Ekman's seven basic emotions it was six, he expanded to seven. Sometimes the list is, I think it's 23, then it's back to seven. Depends how you define these things. And that becomes an academic question. But there is a fundamental, I think, truth and observable, observable fact that um, some emotions have immediate facial characteristics in their expression um, that no doubt have uh, deep biological roots. And there's a lot of virtue to working on what those are and how they function biologically. I think the problem is when you take that approach and then combine it with common sense, everyday language, and historical experience about what the different emotions are and, and feelings and how those are distributed and named differently and try to do everything that same way. So if happiness and sadness are readily expressed on the face, what about argumentativeness, to, to refer to a previous example? What does that look like on the face? And maybe we're doing it wrong if we're asking all emotions, as we call them in our everyday language, to get shoehorned in the same methodological bucket. So that's where Darwin's list is very, very long. And it's speculative. And he fully understands and analyzes the ways in which the names of the emotions that he uses are quite specific historically, culturally, and linguistically. So when he does his photo experiments and, and shows people expressions that he thinks might say display contempt, he's surprised that people recognize the emotions immediately, but name it something different. And he says, huh, they're not wrong, nor am I. This is about the method. And the diversity of responses, it's not an infinite list, but it's going to be a, a diverse list. And let's take seriously what, di what that diversity entails. And that's, that's how I see it. So I think that depending upon what your method is and what your goals are in terms of research and application, you're going to define and number the emotions differently. And the important thing is to recognize what the relationship is between your goal and your methodology and the emotions that you name. Yes, methods. So research practices, right? How do they make or break the kind of research we do, the kind of assumptions we make, the kind of conclusions we draw from our experiments? How have the lab-controlled manner in which experiments on emotions have been performed and our assumptions shaped our understanding of emotions? Can we do better than this? In your research, you believe we can, but how? Right. So there are real virtues to the laboratory approach and real limitations. And as long as those limitations are recognized, the, the results can be really useful. That said, for the time being, at least, for the most part, to do brain scans, you need to be still. There are images that a subject will look at. The constraints are severe. And me, it, that means that the situations can be very different from emotions in the wild. Uh, so just recognizing what the constraints mean in terms of their, their findings is the important part. And then 
being really careful with the next step. And this is where I think the prestige of science and the popularity of certain scientific explanations for very difficult social and political realities produces some problems. So if you, let's say, identify mirror neurons, and then from that discovery, make widely speculative claims about human nature and how people interact with one another and what should be done about that, that's something completely different. And the movement from the very local observations, which can be hugely valuable, to the broad speculation about what we should do socially and politically, that's the hard part. And science media plays a role in that as well, because they, those are great stories to tell, even if they're not true. So methodologically, when I'm working with Stephanie Preston, she's an ecological neuroscientist at the University of Michigan, and we've co-authored a few pieces together and, and worked together on a few different projects. Uh, we came up with a list of four methodological recommendations uh, for folks in emotion studies, and I'll, I'll just run through those quickly. So one is proceed phenomenologically and ecologically. So that's to say, give weight to the everyday experience of emotional phenomena and their subjective description. If love isn't on your list of emotions, maybe your list might be wrong. Two, at the same time, don't take immediate feelings only at face value. So just because a subject has an immediate emotional response, let's say to in-group and out-group tokens, that doesn't mean that the emotional reaction is only explained by way of biological correlates, natural instinct, and evolutionary time. So in this example, historical time might best explain how lines of affiliation are naturalized by way of immediate response. So unfiltered racist reactions, for example, have a certain physiology, but that doesn't mean that they're best understood and addressed at the level of physiology. Three, always historicize. And for those familiar with the humanities, you'll recognize a dictum from a literary critic, Fred Jameson. If you're studying empathy, for instance, specify how your study relates to our common sense about empathy. It's historically specific and ethically loaded. And likewise, remember that environments are gonna be both natural and historical, right? Built environments, cultural, linguistic. And then finally four, avoid reduction, followed by upward reclassification. So it's one thing to simplify for the sake of measurement. It's another to reclassify back up to the larger construct. That's what I was just talking about in terms of the social and political exigencies. So with, without the warrants to do so, that's a kind of argumentative constraint. Um, simple measurements can inform some lofty human con concerns. And that is something that should be done quite carefully. Another way to put this is watch out for individual and invalid inferences from constrained study design. And a bit later, I can describe how that works in practice. So let's move now to the example of sympathy empathy, as we promised a few minutes ago. In your research, you draw special attention to this concept of sympathy, and uh, you say that. Sympathy and empathy are poorly understood today. I totally agree with that. In our stubborn tendency to distinguish them due to our methodological and theoretical practices, 
In fact, many prefer to differentiate even further this artificial segregation into what is called today cognitive versus emotional empathy, empathic concern. So there is so much confusion. Paul Loom, as you also mentioned, can testify to it. Now you use these examples as a way to show how research can go bad. Let's spend a little bit of time here because this is such an important topic. Why do we still disagree on these essential phenomena? Because they are essential to our everyday life. And how can we address this problem? Yeah, great. Thank you for that. So an example, is there such a thing as bad empathy? Uh, yes, you can feel for things and people that are bad. The philosopher Martha Nussbaum insists feeling for someone else can actually enhance mistreatment because you know better how to harm. As many have observed, empathy can actually undermine helping behaviors because it can feel good enough by itself. So there's that, but generalizing from these examples would be wrong. And a lay reader of Bloom's book Against Empathy might incorrectly infer that empathy shouldn't be taught, let's say to healthcare professionals. And here I'm again drawing on Stephanie Preston's work when in fact, many aspects of empathy are critical to successful treatment, eliciting symptoms from reticent patients, increasing treatment adherence, improving illness coping, reducing diagnostic anxiety, and that promotes problem solving. So Stephanie remarks on how scientists tend to generalize through broader terms like empathy without acknowledging the limited study context. And this generalization can even dehumanize the people that surround us and whom we love. So this is her example. A researcher might study people who are diagnosed on the autism spectrum and find that they score lower than normal individuals on tasks like labeling small slices of facial expressions from just the eyes, decoding a cartoon joke, for example. So researchers have referred to such individuals as being mind blind. And the most notorious is Simon Baron-Cohen. And this first research appeared in the 1990s. And it's had a lot of traction ever since. Or that these individuals lack empathy or even lack moral agency. These are turns of phrase that obscure the subject's intact capacities and have implications for the subject's very humanity, right? Someone on the spectrum can indeed show distress when another person is distressed or feel happy when another person's happy. Uh, and that's a kind of sine qua non of empathic capacity according to many different definitions. And one that accords, I, I also observe with Darwin's description of how we can catch emotions from other people, kind of emotional contagion. So generalizing from one task to the broader label is inappropriate and gives people a mistaken view of human capacities in their range. Here we also, I think, have an example of hasty brain localization. If you assume that a slice of a picture, uh, a, a slice of a picture of a face or a black and white line drawing cartoon task implies empathy writ large, like the big term, whatever we mean by that, you might also readily assume that brain areas associated with these many regions have been identified and that there is this specific empathy brain region. That's not the case. 
There are many regions that are associated with empathy and many circuits. And Preston and uh, Franz Duval's work has documented that. So researchers make the mistake of having a kind of requirement to operationalize a task in the laboratory and attaching that to a larger construct. And that's what causes them to miss, I think, and even misrepresent a complex dynamic and the nature of the very phenomenon that's, that they've set out to study. So again, it's this movement from a either very general term like empathy that's understood by different people and researchers in different ways, and then used to kind of create an ambiguity or an equivocation and shoehorning in whatever claim you want to make about empathy then in a very narrowly understood sense based on the, the work that you've done in a particular study. So it's that movement from these very precise and sometimes stipulative definitions, so narrow scientific definitions designed to differentiate a particular approach to an experience or a concept or a phenomenon, and then without making it clear how, moving from that specificity to what everyone on the street understands as empathy, right? That's, I think, the big mistake. Yes. The people on the street, as far as I know, and I've done a little bit of research on empathy myself, don't really differentiate between empathy and sympathy. They know there is some difference, but it's very hard for them to pinpoint. And as you said, it's very hard for researchers to pinpoint as well. Yes, in our lived experience spectrum, there is this continuum that involves sympathy and empathy. Is it important to differentiate, to really say from here to here is empathy and from here to here is sympathy? Is there any application that can can do so? Because in your research, you say where we place the bar and for whom is strongly dictated by our history and experience in ways that are not always obvious to the actors. I think that in the research you do and those probably in your immediate environment in linguistic, cognitive science, it's extremely important to draw these distinctions because otherwise you don't know what you're studying and what you're looking for. The terms are going to be too ill-defined to really design a study appropriately. What you do with it then and the way you describe this local definition and its relationship to everyday understanding I think is is important and and probably neglected. So as an historian myself, I think of it in a couple of different ways. One is empathy coming from the German Einfühlung, feeling into, is pretty recent, right? That's a term of art that's just a bit over a hundred years old and was developed in in the domain of aesthetics amongst folks who are really interested in what it's like to be at a museum and and see a work of art and have an emotional response, what it is to feel your way into someone else's situation, whether it's joyful or one of suffering. And they wanted to distinguish that from classical terms. This would be Adam Smith, for example, sympathy as a more cognitive, as we now say, process where you can, again, according to Adam Smith, perhaps imagine 
with decreasing accuracy and decreasing feeling what it is for an earthquake on the other side of the world to produce suffering over there. So sympathy, it does sometimes just overlap descriptively with what we now call empathy. Um, and sometimes it's meant differently with the cognitive and the immediate feeling being the big distinguishing factor. You also talk about the crucial need for an interdisciplinary approach to emotions and emotion research. Specifically, you argue that we should rethink the typical hierarchical approach where science is assumed to inform the humanities, but not the other way around. How can humanities, social sciences, and I would say even the arts can contribute to a better understanding of emotions and thus of human experience? How can we convince both sides, if we can call it this way, sciences and humanities, to join forces in this direction? While we agree that no one discipline is enough to tackle emotions alone, what kind and how wide of a collaboration do you think would advance our understanding of emotions and the best practices? So a couple of exa examples. I've worked with Stephanie on conferences and joint writing projects going back to 2003. We were both young faculty people. Uh, Stephanie was a postdoc at the University of Iowa in 2003, and we put together an interdisciplinary conference, including her advisor, Franz Deval, a primatologist, health scientist, neuroscientist, and folks from the humanities on the topic of empathy. And simply getting people in the room and talking to one another is a, is a wonderful first step. It is hard. It was contentious when we did it then. We did it again in uh, San Diego, UC San Diego in 2016. Again, there was a lot of contention and disagreement, and there were some high emotions running through the, both of those events. That said, super productive. So out of that came the first written collaboration between uh, me and Stephanie. But again, there, it's, it's a, an interesting, I think, worthwhile process to describe. We have a very hard time writing together because the, our vocabulary our ways of understanding how discourse works, our understanding of what good method is, everything is different. I'm in the humanities and, and Stephanie Preston is in um, the natural sciences. So we need to talk through everything we do, which winds up being really productive. It's difficult, it's slow, but I can't take for granted the concepts and claims that I make nor can she, we keep asking each other, like, what does that mean? So for example, I used this phrase a, a moment ago, Victorian sympathy. I wrote that into the first draft of what she and I were working on together. And she put in the margin comments, what is that? <laughs> there, there, there could be no such thing, right? Because from her perspective, that's much too specific for it to be a qualifier of empathy. Like there's, there's no such thing as Victorian empathy. And I, that wasn't something I was going to let go of because, in fact, it, it includes my entire thesis that there is such a thing as Victorian sympathy. So we then had to go back to Darwin and basically read together and say, okay, what's he doing here? How specific is it? What de defines it in opposition to other types of historical sympathy? And ultimately, it survived in, into the final draft, but it took some time, and, and there are many, many other examples. We find it amusing, and thankfully, it doesn't have 
direct consequences for me, but when I come up for review in my department and in the school and I have work with a neuroscientist, people are impressed like, oh, wow, you're working across disciplines. Good for you. This is really noteworthy. Stephanie says when she comes up for review in her department, they wonder why she's wasting her time. (laughs) It's a very different institutional situation. The prestige of science, the funding of science does not depend upon the humanities at all. So hence that, like, are you sure you're not wasting your time question? Whereas it, it, it works in the other direction coming from the humanities, namely the humanities are you know, on the edge of campus at this point. And so there's a kind of just immediate legitimacy that comes from working with the natural sciences, which can be dangerous. I mean, it's part of my um, written critique since my first book on this topic in 2007 is directed at a kind of facile appropriation of natural scientific sensibilities and methods into the humanities with Martha Nussbaum as as kind of exhibit A for that. So the imprimatur of science is not enough. You really need to do the work and argue out the differences and come often to new territory that is neither in your camp or theirs, but is something new and shared. Yes. I've been with with one foot in humanities and social sciences and with another in computer science and engineering. My research has been an umbrella to all these fields. And I have to tell you that this has been the best time of my research life because I've got to see different points of view. And I'm amazed how many things they have in common and how well they complement each other. That's why I actually started this podcast to really advertise this new age, I would say. But I do understand that each field has its own academic ways and research practices. Yeah, and I think that narrowness can be a virtue as long as then the ambitions for the meaning of your work don't get blown out of proportion, right? Right. But most of the research we're doing, especially in these fields, I'm not saying all the fields in academia, but many fields, right? They do come together, especially under this term of situated felt experience. So we cannot really have one without the other. And this actually includes technology as well. The AI community is very much interested in emotions and empathy, and I believe in uh, how to put them to use for the good of all. However, even though we do have access to large amounts of real-world data today, as the research community at large, technologists too continue to downplay the importance of context and simplify and compartmentalize real-world human experience in our obsession with ad hoc intrinsic performance metrics. It is obvious that we fundamentally misunderstand the nature of emotions and thus generate unrealistic predictive models. Can technology get this right? If so, how? I know that these are big questions, but what is your opinion on this? Or at least where should we start or restart? So here I want to go back to Recommendation number four, avoid reduction followed by upward reclassification. So that's right. On the one hand, 
you point out, we have access to large amounts of real world data, brain scans and other types of physiological output, all types of behaviorist observation, sophisticated survey tools that can get into how subjects experience and describe their own emotions, implicit bias tests come to mind. On the other hand, we have urgent social and political issues that we think, sensibly enough, might be addressed by emotion research. Everything from programs for personal well-being to ending racial hatred once and for all. The problem comes when we draw these facile connections between the two rather than constrained data on one side and rather broad social problems on the other, they're, they're brought together quickly. So wouldn't we love to find easy connections between the two? Problems solved, perhaps even with a pill. And that sounds funny, but I am referencing research on beta blockers for racism. There is such a thing. In fact, this is a fantasy that's not so far-fetched. A UCI colleague of mine, Erica Hayazaki, a literary journalist, uh, wrote a great piece on this impossible dream for the New Republic. The piece is called The Pathology of Prejudice. A lot of time and money is wasted on ill-conceived projects like that, and they're kind of tantalizing distractions, but they do take resources away from efforts that can actually help. When it comes to something like racism, we need to focus on bad social and political structures and not on bad brains. Let's talk now about the future, well, as much as we can talk about it. How do you see the role of technology, in particular AI, in shaping our emotional awareness, as well as practices of emotion research in the next, say, 10 to 20 years? More specifically, do you think immersive technologies can help researchers on both sides of the research aisle to rethink our practices and facilitate wider collaboration on the topic of emotions, empathy, and felt experience in general? And we can also look at the problem the other way around. How can the research community at large, not only scientists, can inform, shape, and have a say in the kind of effective and empathic technologies AI should build for the good of all. Right, so as you're indicating, good and more collaborative work should prevail when a more narrow approach languishes or hits a dead end. And here I'm thinking, for instance, of the dead ends the philosopher Hubert Dreyfus predicted for AI as far back as 1965, when it was becoming increasingly clear that a cognitive as opposed to a contextual approach to AI uh, was gaining prestige and momentum at MIT in particular. Uh, I think that's a good kind of historical example of a course correction, very controversial then and to this day, but I think important. So that's to say, I think we'll certainly see more such collaborative work down the line. Um, and often when methods hit those dead ends, as you suggest, it'll help where we have common domains in which to work. Immersive technologies might very well provide one example, but just because we might share a domain across disciplines, I'm, I think for instance of Pixar's film Inside Out, brought together artists and scientists, including Paul Ekman. Um, it doesn't mean that a great outcome is guaranteed. I like the film, but as a scholar in the field, it really strikes me as propaganda for Ekman's view. 
and it really doesn't move the field forward beyond that. So immersive technologies, I think, are a shared domain and are more obviously suggestive to collaboration than some others. I think though that it's not, we can't wait for those technological domains to lead. Really, it's about the will of us as researchers and the funding structures for our projects, right? This is work that requires us getting together and not just thinking about how the technological domain invites new opportunities, but also what are the histories, the methodologies, the power, the money, and the politics behind our projects that tend to force us into silos, and what do we do about that? I think both are important at the same time. So there are these domains of overlap, right? So humanoid robots or intelligent systems that detect human emotion can thus spot terrorists at the airport, liars in the courtroom, sufferers in need, and so on. Important, but also sometimes dangerously misguided because of that promise that they seem to hold out. Um, that final example, however, AI detection of suffering, I think is technologically feasible and could be, if used correctly, practically helpful. It doesn't mean that the detection system needs to be humanoid in its responses, but there are ways in which that could be really helpful just to enhance environmental sensors and reactive technology that can work not just with facial expressions, but other sorts of physiological output and behaviors and contacts and do an interpretation that errs on the side of helping. I don't see why that would be a problem. I, I can see that only as a benefit. And I think that that's the way to conceive of these projects, not as the kind of dream of reproducing humanoid emotion, which is fun to think about and interesting and very science fiction-y and, you know, do a movie or write a book. But when it comes to the practical work, it's about these sort of functional and operational helping opportunities where things like affective computing can really help. Yes, I, I do agree with you. There is a, a spectrum of applications, some more feasible than others. One of the critiques of emotion AI has been the fact that computers, robots, cannot really get a good glimpse of the emotions of a person because it's an internal thing. It's something very, very specific to that person. And, and this is true, right? So one big question here is to what extent advances in AI can really get an understanding of or capture these emotions of a person. But one question here is how about humans? How good are we to really get to understand what another person is really feeling? We're really good at it. That's one of the things that makes us human and these rich, complex organisms. As you're describing the artificial intelligence technologies that could detect, say, human emotion and the difficulty with the ways in which they can be internal. Think about how we do that so subtly, sometimes intuitively, when someone enters the room and you sense that something's wrong, 
for example, um, or you witness uh, an uncomfortable situation because someone has entered a room and there's a kind of dissonance for reasons that you may not be able to articulate if asked, though, you might be able to. So, and these are human experiences that would be, in my estimation, impossible to program. Like, let's say, you know, the gendered experience of a young woman in an engineering class where um, men predominate. What does that feel like? When does it feel like that? And why, right? Can you program a computer to do those types of interpretations and then maybe react with, with certain types of, I don't know, room rearra rearrangement efforts or group formation efforts or follow-up? Maybe, but the programming required to get to that level of accuracy isn't worth it because people can do that, right? We know how to make those sorts of really subtle social, political, historical, environmental judgments and, and have reactions, which are fundamentally about emotion, not just also in their direct expression, but also with layers like performing emotions or not performing them, apathy. Like, what does it mean in different contexts to not have an emotional reaction? Context there is absolutely essential. And that's something that humans do. That's how we go about our business in the world. And technologies that are really context sensitive are very difficult to develop, not impossible, especially if you're just talking about a simple physical environment. So robots can do that, but a, a complex human environment, not just in its physical manifestation, but in its layers of meaning and the constraints and opportunities that it offers to different types of people who can experience this space in different ways. I think that's a level of complexity that we humans will always be the best at. Yes, yes, undeniably there. Yet, we also have problems understanding each other all the time in our constant effort to try to figure out what the others mean by saying something, by behaving in different ways. And we don't have access to complete information all the time. Our reality, in fact, is uh, limited to our sensory apparatus. So it was interesting to really know, who knows, sometime in the future, what is the upper bound of the human on understanding what the other person really feels. Yeah, I, I have some thoughts on that that I've, I've worked on for a piece I did a little while back. So the thought experiment is, from an evolutionary standpoint, would it not be adaptive for, let's say, infants and adult human beings for that matter, to have, let's say, their emotions stamped on their forehead, right? So when you feel something, it just has some sort of immediate and unambiguous expression. The first thought is like, oh, that would be great. Then I wouldn't need to interpret what my infant needs. There'd be a direct communication. There would be no interference. Here's the thing. Biologically, that would be disadvantageous. And I think the reason why is it's exactly the interpretive difficulty that is posed to us and the kind of triangulation we constantly need to do. Okay, what's going on with this person in relation to me and others right now 
in this context. And then that shifts a little bit and you follow up and you interact and that shifts it once again. That's what we're really good at. It's in fact, negotiating this constant uncertainty. And the hypothesis is that even biologically, if you got rid of all of the uncertainty, that would be disadvantageous because it's really not the interpretation of the emotion that's the single most important thing. It's the exercising of, an, of our interpretive and interactive capacities that's important. And that's what we're constantly required to do and to struggle with. And it's that struggle, which is the important part. Yes, yes. Very well said. Absolutely. The emotional stamp on the forehead is not only biologically challenging, is also ethically challenging, right? Ethical considerations are especially important when it comes to emotions and empathy. And privacy is included here as well. So how can a wider research collaboration on these topics can keep AI and the research community at large ethical? Yeah. So here, I'll go back to Stephanie's critique of Bloom and Baron Cohen. If your work pathologizes and dehumanizes, you're probably doing it wrong. If your work offers magic bullets for deep social problems, a cure for racism is the example I've been talking about. Again, you're probably doing it wrong and distracting, I think, from the harder work that's required when we are all hands on deck, uh, including the arts and the humanities. It would be great to have some AI system, automatic system that implements these checkpoints that you just mentioned to really flag those who step outside of the ethical parameter. A great idea. <laughs> I'll leave that to you. Well, I'm not sure if I'm going to carry that on, but who knows, maybe other people who are listening yeah. to us. This was great, Daniel. How can our audience learn more about you, your books and your research? And how can you be reached? Yeah, it was really great talking with you. Nowadays, it's probably easiest to just look up my books on Amazon or another book engine search, use my middle initial. Otherwise, I'll get buried in the results next to a slate reporter and a tech guru also named Daniel Gross. And then um, I would recommend in terms of this methodological work and discussion we've had, there's a piece that I did with Stephanie Preston in the emotion review going back about a year. It's called, the, it's called Darwin and the Situation of, of Emotion Research. And I think that'd be a good starting point. And I will share all this with our listeners as well. Thank you for your time, Daniel. This was great. Thank you.